Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. And today, my guest will be Trevor Erlocker, who is the author of Ukrainian Nationalism in the Age of Extremes, an intellectual biography of Dmitry Donsov, published by Harvard University Press and the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard in 2021. Welcome, Trevor, and thanks for joining us today. Hi, Stephen. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, uh, a little bit about our featured author today. Trevor Erlanker completed his PhD in Russian and East European history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 2017. He was a Fulbright Fellow in Ukraine in 2014-15 and a recipient of the Nepirani Dissertation Fellowship from the Canadian Institute for Ukrainian Studies. In 2018, he was a postdoc fellow in the Ukrainian Research in Switzerland Initiative at the University of Basel. Prior to grad school, he studied Russian language and Soviet and Ukrainian history at Portland State University. Erlacher's research deals with the entangled cultural and intellectual history of nationalism, socialism, and fascism in early 20th century Eastern and Central Europe with a focus on Ukraine and Ukrainians in their various transnational and imperial contexts. His writing has already appeared in several journals, including Modern Intellectual History, Ab Imperio, Canadian Slavonic Papers, Region, and Connects. He currently serves as an academic advisor, program coordinator, and editor for the Center for Russian East European Eurasian Studies, RIS, and the Association for Slavic East European and Eurasian Studies, ACES, at the University of Pittsburgh. So uh, let's get started right with this book about a biography. Could you introduce for our audience who was Dmitry Donsov? Sure. Um, so Dmitry Donsov was the spiritual father, the intellectual founder of what is often called Ukrainian integral nationalism. Uh, this was the ideology of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists or OUN, uh, and also its military wing, the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, or UPA. Uh, And so uh, Dmitry Donsov was uh, born in 1883, lived to 1973, and was uh, a very influential figure in the development of Ukrainian nationalist thought uh, throughout these uh, decades. And I'm really interested in asking questions about uh, present to past, and in particular, because I, I do a little bit of biography myself, um, if there was anything that motivated you from the present in, in Ukrainian history or your own history to start to investigate this person? Yeah, uh, well, when I first uh, became interested in, in the region as a whole, I was interested in learning more about Russia, about the Soviet Union, and it was later on that I that I began to realize that the Soviet Union, the Russian Empire, these were multinational polities, and uh, the Ukrainians were a, were a distinct nation with a distinct history and language. Um, and I, I suppose I came to this by meeting Ukrainians, meeting Russians during uh, just my my life. Uh, I, I moved to Portland, Oregon. I was working in a factory, and there were immigrants from both of these countries that I interacted with on a daily basis. 
And so uh, when I got into college, a little bit thereafter, I decided that I really wanted to focus on uh, on these two groups and uh, their sort of varied historical experiences. And do you think that there were any books that, that got you interested in, in the topic in Ukrainian history? I know there's that, that wonderful Ralph Lindheim uh, anthology, I think, from the, the late 90s on Ukrainian intellectual history. Or was there something maybe that, that you read that got you interested in, in Ukraine and biography by that point as an undergrad or grad student? Yeah, uh, actually, that is the very book uh, that introduced me to uh, Ukrainian intellectual history and to, to Donsov in particular. Um, there was, uh, uh, it includes an excerpt from his most famous work, uh, Nationalism, uh, published in 1926. And uh, I just found it to be uh, extremely interesting, his writing style, the kinds of ideas he was expressing, and how... Uh, formative they were for uh, for Ukrainians in the interwar period. Uh, and, and I knew that I wanted to do a, a biography because I'm very interested in this idea of microhistory uh, and using uh, the sort of personal experience to talk about much larger historical processes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can see this this combination of, of kind of Carlo Ginzburg in, in the book as, as well as this transnational dimension. Um, could you talk a little bit about maybe the historiography? I know this is a complex question from, say, you know, like John Armstrong um, and Alexander Motil all the way up to the present and, and the biography of Alexander Zaitsev in Lviv about Donsov. Um, I, I know you take a lot of points of departures from their work, but maybe you could conceptualize that for the audience, that the framework of the existing Donsov studies Sure. Uh, so it, it's important to understand that a lot of this uh, historiography, uh, it starts in the West uh, with the Ukrainian diaspora. Um, many of them, uh, people who had participated uh, in the Ukrainian independence uh, struggles, uh, but also people like John Armstrong, who were closely uh, connected with them uh, in, in various ways. And a lot of this scholarship, uh, starting with John Armstrong, going through uh, Alexander Motul and others, uh, talks about the organization of Ukrainian nationalists and the Ukrainian insurgent army as examples of integral nationalism, uh, which they use to distinguish it from uh, fascist movements uh, at the same time in Europe by saying that uh, these movements were were. Uh, I suppose, national liberation movements um, that had more democratic content because they were representing a stateless nation uh, and therefore could not possibly have been fascist, no matter what sort of uh, content their ideology has that that would suggest a sort of kinship with Italian fascism or, or national socialism. Uh, and, you know, this has been taken up by uh, contemporary historians in, uh, in Ukraine today. Uh, and it's, it's very much, much the antithesis of the, the Soviet historiography on the topic, uh, which tends to look at these movements as uh, collaborationist, uh, as, as mere copies of fascism in other parts of Europe. Um, and so th- this is the sort of debate that I, I'm stepping into with this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I wonder if we, we can come back to some of your thoughts about that. Um, but I really want you to sort of lay out 
your book for the audience. If, if you could kind of divide Dunsoff's life into phases, as you say, in this kind of microhistorical format, how how did you lay out your chapters in, in covering the 90 years of his life? Yeah, so the, the book is divided into six chapters that are more or less chronological, um, and they take uh, key moments uh, in, in Donso's life, which also line up with, with major events in uh, Europe's 20th century. So uh, the first chapter, uh, it starts with his, uh, his birth in 1883 and goes up to the eve of the, the First World War. Uh, tracking his uh, evolution from uh, the sort of Marxism of his student years uh, to his disillusionment with socialist ideas, uh, again, around about 1914. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that, that really intrigued me about Donsov was the fact that he, he defies a lot of the stereotypes that we have about about nationalists in general and about Ukrainian nationalists in particular, uh, because he, he he grows up in southeastern Ukraine or what is today southeastern Ukraine uh, in the, the city of uh, Militopol. Uh, he gets his education uh, in Saint Petersburg and has this very sort of imperial cosmopolitan education. His family is mostly uh, Russian speaking, uh, and and his older brothers and, and father identified as ethnically Russian. Um, and yet it is through this sort of uh, this experience, this uh, education that he has, that he comes to see himself as a Ukrainian and eventually as a as Ukrainian nationalist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you're, you're very much focused on this period before World War One, as far as I understand, up to 1914. Um, the chapters that you have have later on are, are so interesting because they'll extend to his Cold War period in, in Montreal and his life in Canada. Um, but I, I guess if we could focus on that earlier period, it seems to me that one of your big arguments is that he was a, a kind of cosmopolitan, or as you call it, a cosmopolitan ultra-nationalist. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that... I, I believe that it is through his exposure to the other and through his exposure to ideas coming from Europe uh, and also to ideas coming from Russian nationalists uh, within the empire that he becomes aware of himself as a Ukrainian uh, and, and begins to articulate this ideology of Ukrainian nationalism that would not have existed had he you know, stayed in his hometown uh, and not pursued this uh, this cosmopolitan education. Uh, so you know he uh, he goes to to Vienna after you know a, a couple of arrests by the the imperial uh, gendarme. Um, mm. He he has to flee the authorities because of his involvement with the socialist movement in the Russian Empire, and it's there in in Vienna, which is also you know a very cosmopolitan imperial city, that he gets exposed to. Um, what I call a kind of heterodox Marxism, right? Which is say mm-hmm, a, right. a Marxism that has all of this anti-positivist content that tries to uh, harness national movements, national sentiments uh, in a very voluntaristic idea of history uh, for the purposes of revolution and, and, um, and progress. 
Mm-hmm. And so how do you line him up with his contemporaries? I mean, obviously, you know, one can draw parallels with actual fascists like Mussolini and Hitler, but you introduce a lot of other characters. So how, how do you, you know, decide if you can compare his life to anyone else's, who, who those people are? Uh, well, Mussolini is a good example, uh, you know, famously a, a socialist when he was younger who takes some of that same rhetoric, those same ideas, uh, but then applies them instead of class uh, to, to nation and to the national struggle. Um, but, you know, at, at this point in his life, he's, he's a lot more interested in the Austro-Marxists, uh, people like Otto Bauer. Right. Uh, he's interested in the National Democrats in Poland, people like uh, Roman Domowski. Uh, and I would also compare him to a figure like um, uh, Zeev Jabotinsky, um, you know, this uh, key Zionist figure who undergoes a process of radicalization and becomes more militant uh, as the years go on and, and, and also comes out of this Russian imperial context. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess moving into into the chapters which are really about Donsov just on the eve of World War One and through World War One. I mean, I know there's a lot of Polish history and historiography that's been written, Striak and, and Wisotsky, Tomasz Striak and Roman Wisotsky. But, but how do you, you know, sort of read the actual output, not just the travels, but the output of Donsov and then reconceptualize that kind of trajectory? Yeah. Um, so I, I think one of the most important texts from this uh, this first chapter of, uh, of his life is um, a, a speech that he gave in 1913 to uh, uh, an assembly of, of students, Ukrainian students in uh, Lviv, uh, where he argues that the most progressive thing that Ukrainians can do is to separate themselves from the Russian Empire and align themselves with Austro-Hungary and with the German Empire in what he predicted would be uh, a, a massive conflict between these two um, geopolitical alignments, right? So right. Uh, he, he's predicting the First World War already in 1913, and he's saying that Ukrainians need to choose Central Europe, Middle Europa, as uh, the more progressive of the two options. And he, and he makes a sort of Marxist case uh, for participating in this imperial conflict um, by saying that uh, Russia represents the antithesis of European civilization, whereas the Germans uh, represent its, its future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you think during the war he experienced some experiences some kind of intellectual or, or political transformation? Because, I mean, I guess if you could explain to our audience the people he consorted with, and you know, he he seems to have been involved in the Union for the Liberation of Ukraine as well as some conservatives as well. Or, I guess my question would be, what what is his experience during the war during World War One? Yeah, so at the very beginning of the war, he uh, is the is the head uh, for just a month or two of the the Union for the Liberation of Ukraine, uh, which mostly consisted of Western Ukrainians with a kind of uh, liberal or or socialist outlook, um, who worked with the the central powers to try and. Um, 
I guess, mobilize Ukrainians uh, in, in service of, of their war effort uh, and, and to take POWs from the Imperial Russian Army uh, who were ethnically Ukrainian and, and convince them that their interests would be better served by, by serving uh, the other side. Um, mm-hmm. But he had a falling out with uh, his, his comrades in the, in the Union for the Liberation of Ukraine uh, and begins to th- see socialists, uh, to see Marxists as the problem rather than part of the, the solution. Uh, mm-hmm. So he, he becomes very disillusioned with socialist ideas, disillusioned with uh, the leftist approach to the, the Ukrainian liberation struggle, and begins moving more in what I would call German imperial uh, and German uh, conservative circles uh during the war years. So uh, he becomes a kind of secret agent of uh, the German empire. He starts to get involved in uh, propaganda efforts, uh, setting up shop in uh, the neutral territory of Switzerland, uh, trying to convince uh, the West uh, in particular, uh, the United States, uh, Britain, France, that, uh, Germany and Austria-Hungary are actually doing a good thing on the Eastern Front. They are fighting the Russian Empire with the goal of liberating all of the oppressed nationalities uh, mm. uh, under the Tsar. So, you know, yeah. Poles, Ukrainians, the Estonians, and so on. Yeah. It, it almost sounds like a German Promethean project, or, or I mean, because he's he gets affiliated with the Skoropotsky regime too, or I mean, what, what exactly happens to him toward the end of the war? And I'm looking at, you know, the period after the Russian revolution. Yeah. So he uh, is missing an action for the actual um, declaration of, uh, of independence of the Ukrainian people's Republic, uh, you know, with the, um, the fourth universal in uh, January, 1918, He, he arrives in Kiev a little bit after that. And takes part in Pavlo Skoropadsky's coup d'état, uh, which was backed by the Germans, uh, on on whose sort of military uh, and financial support the Skoropadsky regime was completely reliant. Sure. Uh, and this was, uh, in some sense, uh, an anti-socialist um, uh, junta. It was a, it was a coup d'état that that wanted to put. Uh, a new kind of Ukrainian aristocracy in power with, with the Hetman, uh, you know, a sort of revived uh, early modern Ukrainian title uh, in power. Uh, and, and the idea was that they would help uh, to, to, to get the food, the resources that the German war effort needed out of the country and to fight back against the Bolshevik uh, revolution, which was already you know, well underway uh, in the rest of the former now Russian empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem with that was that within the Skoropadsky regime, there were a lot of Russian imperialists. Uh, exactly. That's a, a good of, point. Yeah. A lot of Skoropadsky's old uh, comrades were uh, military officers in, in the Imperial Russian Army. And there was always a tension between creating Ukrainian independence or creating a Ukrainian state and reconstituting the Russian Empire uh, uh, by defeating the, the Soviet state, nascent Soviet state. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm wondering, Trevor, this is, I'm so curious about your book and the sources. So, you know, I mean, there's this diary, of course, and, and there's a lot of these ego documents of, of, of uh, Dunsoff in his writing. And I just keep wondering how reliable they are. And, you know, he writes this 1918 
diary. How, how do you read his words? And then how do you read around his words sort of externally? Um, because there's so many problems with his narratives. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, um, you know, that the actual diary, uh, well, the, the, the diary that he claims that he kept in, in 1918 wasn't even published until 1954. Uh, exactly. All sorts of uh, geopolitical changes that happened. He'd been living in Canada at that point and was now trying to rebrand himself as a, uh, something other than what he had been for the, you know, the, the preceding 30, 40 years. Um, and so, yes, you, you have to read it very carefully uh, and you have to try and find uh, other sources that can corroborate what he's saying. Um and, you know, I suppose, uh, you know, I, I tried to do that work as, as carefully as I could, but I also wanted to uh, to use uh, some of those materials. And, and you know, you can find uh, the original diary entries in his uh, archival collection in Canada uh, mm-hmm. and, and do some cross-checking there. And, you know, it's not totally fabricated uh, mm-hmm. when you're talking about it, particularly when you look at... Um, the accounts of, of his contemporaries uh, in Ukraine at the time who, you know, who do corroborate this uh, claim that he was working very closely with the Skoropadsky regime, that he was the head of the telegraph agency, that he oversaw uh, the brokering of, of a sort of uh, armistice between the Ukrainian state and the Bolsheviks. Um, and, you know, was generally very much involved in the, the PR efforts of uh, Skoropadsky's regime and, and its relations with the Ukrainian population and also with its German um, supporters. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, 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 I understand the difficulty of using that kind of a source, but uh, I, I do think it's, it's an important one uh, to consider for, uh, for the, these years. Yeah, I it, I mean, and I you know all the whitewashing that later goes on in within the community in Canada. I, we'll come back to that as well. I guess I wanted to focus on on 1919, and you know because this is sort of the moment that Armstrong and Motol and, and others zero in on. Um, what ha- what happens to him in 1919, and and because of course the war on the Eastern Front is is not decided quite yet. And there are all of these changes of government in Ukraine. So what are his inspirations? I I guess, would you call Italian fascism an inspiration? Or at this point, is he just a kind of illiberalist or reactionary modernist in the spirit of Jeffrey Herb? I guess we could apply so many different labels, but what's yours? Um, yeah, so in, after the, uh, the Germans withdraw from Ukraine and leave the Skoropadsky regime without any, uh, any defense, really, um, Petnora comes into power uh, and Donsov shortly thereafter decides that he needs to get out of the country uh, because uh, there are all sorts of people that want to kill him. Uh, the, the Russian nationalists. The Bolsheviks, um, they all have uh, a sort of vendetta. And Donsov decides that he needs to to emigrate again to Lviv. And um, he's able to use his connections with Petyura uh, and, and through him to Piłsudski to get uh, a sort of Polish uh, citizenship uh, and ends up settling there in, in Lviv for the, the remainder of the, of the 1920s and, and 1930s. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and his ideology at this point is is not quite uh, you know fascism, uh, although he does take some inspiration from the Italian fascists pretty early on, uh, and and looks to them as a kind of model for Ukrainians. Um, but he is already by 1921 or so. Uh, a, a pretty extreme nationalist, uh, someone that sees the nation as the highest good, as the thing to which all other values, whether we're talking about human rights or democracy, uh, ought to be subordinated. Right? So everything needs to be done in the national interest. And this is the only way that Ukrainians are, are going to survive uh, in, the, you know, in this new world of total war and revolution and so on. Mm-hmm. And I've got to ask a question, and and I, you know, I know that you have a lot in your book about Dunsov's wife. Um, I think it's fascinating how you conceptualize her and and women within your story. You know, even it seems Dunsov is recruiting Lesia Ukrainka for the um, for the fascist movement, and I think that's kind of weird, honestly. You know, I. She's any, anything but a proto-fascist thinker. But, I mean, clearly, you know, he, he seems by the early 20s with these articles and things that he's publishing, Are We Fascists?, um, to be on a sort of ideological mission. And, and so women, especially the one who's closest to him, his wife, um, Maria Bachinska-Dansova, is, is, seems like to be part of this. Is she actually on board with his ideological project? Well, I, I would say that she had a, a different ideology, uh, an ideology that was not compatible with her her husband's, uh, Mitrodontsov's, uh, but she was uh, absolutely uh, critical to his success uh, for various reasons. Um, it was her family uh, that put up the money for his uh, various um, publications, uh, including, you know, his uh, his main journal, Visnik. Uh, she was the one that helped him to basically Germanize himself, uh, helped him with translations of, of German text uh, and then of his text into German uh, with all of the editing, all of the business operations of his uh uh, literary publicistic uh, enterprises, um, but she was uh, at least for a time the the head of the uh, the Union of Ukrainian Women, uh, mm-hmm. which had a much more liberal uh, outlook than than Donsov's integral nationalism, uh, that was much more interested in uh, philanthropy, in human rights, in democracy. Uh, and securing these things for for the Ukrainian population, whereas what Donsov was talking about was was the exact opposite of that, uh, sort of unleashing the the beast in in Ukrainians and and getting rid of all moral um, mm-hmm. uh, qualms uh, about what it would take for a national struggle. Right, anything is justified uh, by the, by the ends. Uh, and so this was one of the things that they, they divided on, uh, but she, she was, um, more or less loyal to him all through the 1930s until they divorced in 1939. Uh, and then basically they became very much estranged uh, thereafter. Mm-hmm. Are there sources that she wrote, Trevor? Uh, did you find things, letters, correspondence where, where she was sort of talking about her life and his life and their communities? 
Uh, yeah, they, they um, their letters, their correspondence is preserved in the, uh, the National Archives in, in Poland. Uh, so you can read all of that going back uh, to before the First World War. Uh, their marriage was not um, something that her father approved of, but as soon as he was dead, they got married and, and did it anyways. Um, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, one of the things that they were they were working on together, you know, uh, as a couple was um, fostering a, a circle of writers, a new generation of Ukrainian poets uh, around the journal uh, Visnik that they, they, they worked on together. Uh, and she was a kind of uh, matriarchal figure to, to a lot of these, uh, you know, these young intellectuals and, and artists. Um, people like uh, Yuri Lipa, Olena Talicha, and, and, and um, Yevhen Malanyuk, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you know, in that way, they they were kind. They never had children together, but they they had uh, spiritual children in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that circle of followers, that literary circle that they created, began to fall apart uh, over the course of the the nineteen thirties, and, and then certainly. Uh, during and after World War II. Mm-hmm. And I, I've got to sort of move on to the 1920s and 1930s. Um, so could you talk about the relationship between, you mentioned Onsaf as the spiritual father of, of Oun, um, and, and of course the later leaders like Stepan Bandera and Roman Shukhevich. So how, I mean, how do you read this particular period and especially his relationship or the Ukrainian relationship to Oun and interwar Poland? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so uh, Donsov was uh, engaged with these, uh, they called themselves organized nationalists, um, starting with uh, Konovalets, um, but uh, because he wanted to maintain his legality in in Poland, he couldn't align himself too closely with a movement that was, after all, uh, anti-Polish and engaged in terrorist attacks, political assassinations, um, violence, illegal activities. Uh, and so he always uh, tried to keep them at a, a sort of arm's length. Um and he never joined the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, although they sent many, many uh, overtures to him. They tried to get him to join, uh, to take responsibility for them as the, the basically the, the person who had given them their ideology. Uh, you know, and this is the case with the with the, the younger generation that uh, is represented by uh, Stepan Bandera and by the older generation uh, represented by Andrei Melnik. Uh, so both of them are trying to get Donsov to, to come on board, uh, to give them the, the kind of uh, ideological, intellectual representation that they wanted. Um, but he, he did not do this. And so there was a, a tension that formed um, between them. Right. And, and, and a lot of them uh, started to see him as uh, an irresponsible ideologue, as someone um, who had re- reneged on his his responsibilities to the movement that he created? 
Mm-hmm. And and I wonder how much consistency you find in his ideology and all of his family resemblances, because, you know, I mean, Roman Sproluk has pointed this out as well. It, it's the question about nationalism and why it was neglected. I wonder sometimes if, if it's a vulgar nationalism that we're talking about is I mean, do you find mediocrity, I guess, in Dunsoff would be would be my question. Is there any sort of consistency in, in what he's actually writing compared to what he's actually doing during this period from, say, the mid-20s into the early 30s? Um, consistency. Well, I would say that there there isn't a whole lot of consistency in terms of the content uh, of what he's writing. Uh, he is someone that, uh, you know, followed a lot of different trends and adopted ideas whenever they seem to be uh, convenient or particularly uh, useful uh, in that moment. Um, and so uh, one of the things that a lot of his critics have said is that he, he was basically uh, a plagiarist. He was a chameleon. He was someone mm-hmm. that, you know, would sort of change his his tune uh, to, to fit that particular moment, to fit his audience, someone without any real philosophical basis for what he's saying. Uh, mm-hmm. Although he always presented it as a unified worldview, as a system that would would usher in a new type of Ukrainian, uh, you know, on 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 various models. Uh, but if, if there's anything that's consistent about it, it's it's this. Um, this extreme nationalism. Um, it's just that, you know, over the years, he, uh, he finds different foreign powers, different foreign ideas to align himself with. Uh, in the early 20s, it's, it's Poland, uh, it's, it's Pilsudski's regime. But then after 1933, it's, it's very much Nazi Germany. He becomes interested in German uh, sort of racial thinkers, uh, Alfred Rosenberg and others. Um, And decides that, well, Ukrainian politics, uh, Ukraine's situation in the world needs to be understood in those terms. Um, And then after World War Two, he he backs away from that again, because, you know, now he needs to convince his new hosts in in the West that he was never a Nazi uh, and, and never had any any time for those ideas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and you mentioned some of his texts. So uh, there's that 1926 uh, nationalism. Um, do you again? You know, do you find his racism or his extreme endorsement of, of violence and anti-Semitism and, and I would say even anti-Russianism um, sort of stepped up during this period? I, I mean, again, it's a matter of, of reading what he's writing and then trying to figure out what he's doing. I, I guess I'm thinking about the Petvira assassination, you know, famously, and and if there are any kind of changes in, in Donsov's arguments or ideology from, from that period. Yeah. Uh, so I start the fourth chapter uh, with the, with the assassination of Petlura um, in Paris by Sholom Schwarzbart, uh, who's a Russian Jewish uh, leftist and anarchist um, who said that he was getting revenge for the pogroms that had happened uh, in 1919, 1920 in Ukraine under Petlura's um uh, leadership, you know, and, and I use the term leadership loosely because it was a very chaotic situation. But so the the uh, the trial itself was kind of like a, a new uh, Dreyfus affair. Uh, the court found uh, Schwarzbart not guilty 
even though, I mean, he he never tried to hide the fact that he had assassinated Petlura in the street, uh, but it became more about indicting the Ukrainian People's Republic than the murder itself. And because mm-hmm. of this, uh, Donsov and a lot of other uh, Ukrainian nationalists uh, uh, throughout Europe uh, came to see... Um, uh, I suppose the, the you know the, the Soviet states uh, and uh, leftists internationally as um, involved in a conspiracy against Ukrainians in which the Jews played uh, a, a preeminent role. And so from this point on, from 1926 on, he becomes much more anti-Semitic. He begins mm-hmm. to see the Jews as agents of Russian imperialism. Uh, which has uh, taken a new form uh, in the Soviet state. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all part of Russian messianism. And so, you know, whereas previously, I mean, he, he had been involved in organizing self-defense groups for, for Jews, uh, you know, during the revolution of 1905. Uh, right. Now right. he begins to adopt this kind of, uh, n- not not just anti-Semitic, but, a, you know, genocidally anti-Semitic uh, uh, you know, belief system that, that only becomes more extreme uh, over the course of the 1930s. So I understand, uh, Trevor, that Donsoff was the editor of Visnik and that he was welcoming a lot of uh, nationalists and nationalists to publish. So could you talk about why he was so admired by the, the younger, more extreme nationalists during this uh, time in the 30s? Sure. So they saw Donsov as someone who had charted out a new path for Ukrainian literature, uh, a radical break with the realist um, uh, literature that Ukrainians had, had been engaged in prior to that, that was very focused on uh, social critique, on social commentary, uh, toward uh, a literature that was uh, focused on heroism, that was focused on uh, national myths on cultivating a kind of new Ukrainian that would be uh, modeled after Cossack heroes, mm-hmm. uh, modeled after you know these sort of medieval uh, romantic ideas from the past, uh, and that they would yeah yeah be, be the kind of Ukrainian that could to, could fight. Uh, in in a future war right. against the against the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. like like Judith or you know Joan of Arc, right? I mean, there was some of these mythic figures even that that he that he Dunsoff had um, endowed with always. It seems, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, with these very sort of masculinist qualities, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, so let, let's talk about World War World War II and the relationship with Oun. What what happens to Donsov uh, during World War II? Yeah, so at the very beginning of the uh, of the conflict, when Germany invades Poland, uh, the, the the Polish authorities shut down his journal, uh, arrest him put him in Bereza uh, Kortuza with a, a number of the other Ukrainian nationalists. Um, uh, but then when the, the Polish regime completely falls apart, uh, they're all released and Donsov flees west. Uh, he ends up eventually settling in Bucharest for a while uh, and working with a new circle of writers um, who are, again, they're, they're articulating this kind of traditionalist um, 
what what they call warlike art, uh, which is a, a Ukrainian literature, Ukrainian art that is is focused on cultivating these martial qualities uh, in in Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. And then from there he goes to Prague um, and uh, writes uh, a, f- a few pieces for the Reinhard Heydrich Institute, um, which was a, a Nazi institution set up in Prague, uh, you know, where, where Charles University is, uh, to develop knowledge, to develop scholarship about the, the, the peoples of Eastern Europe that uh, the Nazi empire builders can use uh, for their own project. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, what's so interesting about this period to me is how, um, as, as the war effort begins to turn against the third Reich, against the Wehrmacht, they become more and more, um, reliant on people like Donsov, uh, to try and mobilize support from, from the Slavs, you know, who had previously been considered, been considered, you know, beneath any sort of collaboration, uh, Untermenschen, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is a time when he is, as usual, just trying to, to survive, to, to keep his career going. Um, but, you know, his followers, uh, the Visnikites, who, who um, you know, had been working with him very closely all through the 1930s, go to the front and, and participate in UPA. They participate in Oun. Uh, and most of them uh, end up being killed uh, over over the course of uh, the, the conflict of World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, because of this, because, you know, he spends uh, the war in relative safety in Prague uh, and then afterward is able to continue his life and his work uh, in the West uh, while his followers are living out the ideals that he had given them. Uh, a lot of people come to see him as as cowardly and, and hypocritical. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm interested, you know, in the journey to Canada. And I think a, a lot of people in, in Ukrainian studies um, will read your book and should should read your book for this um, reason. I mean, there, uh, you know, there's there's first a great suspicion about DPs who are coming to Canada. And then I, I think you point out rightly, secondly, there, there are a lot of liberals in Canada, like um, the literary critic George Chevalier, who's who's one of his denigrators in trying to distance um, the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada from him. Um, so, talk about Donsov in Canada. What, how does he get a job? I'm really curious about that. And and then you know who are his supporters left? Sure. So the, the there's a couple uh, George Rusov. Uh, and and uh, his wife, um, uh, I'm uh, blanking on her name, um, but uh, these are the people that he worked with in uh, in Bucharest. Um, George Rusov was a biologist uh, and actually one of the the people who was um, really influential on Donsov's sort of embrace of uh, scientific racialism. Uh, and he uh, gets a job at the University of Montreal uh, teaching biology and brings in Donsov as uh, as a as a new hire in their Slavic literature program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he works at the University of Montreal for a couple of years teaching uh, Slavic literature. 
Um, but what he's really engaged in, uh, you know, through these years, uh, the, the late 1940s, the 50s, and, and to an extent the 1960s in Canada, is uh, rebranding himself as a cold warrior, uh, as someone with all of this anti-communist experience, uh, uh, fighting the Russians, uh, going on the lecture circuit, and trying to convince his audience in the West um, that what is really needed is a new crusade against the Soviet Union mm-hmm. as this sort of embodiment of all of the evil in the world, uh, of you know, a kind of apocalyptic menace to to Christendom, and and so part of this is. Um, uh, collaborating, working very closely with re- religious leaders um, mm-hmm. in, you know, the Christian fundamentalists in the West. A lot of them were were the reason that he was able to uh, to settle in Canada, despite his past, uh, to get citizenship. They all wrote to their representatives in Parliament uh, and in Congress and, and tried to convince uh, politicians that Don Sov was exactly the kind of man that they needed uh, to win the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm curious because you know there seems to be a period during détente or maybe during the well during the thaw at least where he falls completely out of favor, and yet his work is is published, um, right? I mean, there's a complete collection of his work that that's published in 1958. So I guess you know my my next question for you, since we're kind of beginning to wind down, is how his reputation gets rehabilitated both let's say at the center and, and maybe on the margins or if, if you consider the cult of Dunsoft to be still alive and and where yeah so he republished a lot of his uh, pre-war writing um, in the 1950s and 1960s and he cut out the the offending passages. He cut out the anti-Semitic stuff, the pro-Nazi stuff. Uh, and he had uh, intellectuals, academics like Watson Kirkconnell that would um, report back that, oh, you know, I, I read all of Visnik and I, I never saw anything uh, untoward in there. You know, that, that Donsov was actually just another victim of Nazism and, uh, and not someone who had promoted it. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, um, his followers, the Visnikites, uh, are becoming more and more disillusioned with him uh, and trying to make amends for their own role in what had happened uh, in, in Ukraine during World War II. Uh, but the hardcore uh, Ukrainian nationalists, um, Bandera, Stetsko, uh, others, uh, continue to be very much... Uh, his his admirers to continue to see him as this uh, great thinker, um, and at his funeral in 1973, he's he's buried in uh, Boundbrook, New Jersey. Mm. Uh, all of the different Ukrainian nationalist factions, despite you know really hating one another, came together uh, and eulogized uh, this you know, this figure that they that they really considered to be a spiritual father. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Ukrainian nationalists uh, to this day, uh, both in the West and, and in Ukraine, uh, tend to have a very favorable view of, of Donsov and his contribution to their tradition. Mm-hmm. And, and say a few words about the Donsovian organizations and, and their involvement um, really on the far right in the, the context of the Maidan revolution. And if you, in your judgment, see them as, as, 
toward the center or, or maybe toward the margins. I know the problem, you know, we, we have this idea of extreme nationalism, but leftists like Tariq Ali, for example, writing for a new left review have said what's really extreme is, is the center in the West, the extreme middle. But I guess my question for you would be where Donsov is still alive, if it's just Pravi Sector and Svoboda, or if, if it's Serhii Kvit in the Ministry of Education. How, how do you see that in Ukraine today? Yeah, so, uh, well, certainly uh, organizations like Svoboda and Pravi Sector are, um, you know, are, they take Donsov uh, as a kind of founding figure and are engaged in trying to popularize him, to rehabilitate him in Ukraine today. Um, but but he's also made inroads with, um, I would say, political leaders like Sarhi Kavit, you mentioned, um, who, uh, who see him as, uh, well, certainly not a fascist or an anti-Semite, uh, but as someone who had articulated exactly the ideology that Ukrainians needed to survive the age of extremes, right? To survive the 1920s and 1930s and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this is what everyone uh, in the region was doing at the time, whether they were Stalinists or Nazis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you, you'll see uh, Donsov's face on uh, the Ukraine Forum building now. Uh, you'll see him taught in uh, political science departments and, and philosophy departments, literature departments uh, all across Ukraine. Uh, and you know, it's, it's a sanitized version of him, uh, and, and of his legacy. Um, but, uh, at the same time, you know, th- yeah, this is what Donsov did with himself, right? Right. You know, he, he's always, uh, a kind of floating signifier. Right. And, um, you know, it, you, ha- you have to be really careful uh, when you talk about, you know, Donsovis today. It's like, who, which Donsov are we talking about uh, and, and what does he really believe? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's something that seems to be changing constantly. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, nowadays. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it seems like you're, it's almost like nailing jelly to the wall, which which makes it so, you know, curious. And, and I would guess also somewhat frightening to see. The inscription, as you mentioned, in Ukraine form, Kiev, Dmitry Donsov, ideologue of the Ukra- of Ukrainian nationalism, celebrating him as the head of the Ukrainian Telegraph Agency. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'm really sort of, you know, wondering about your final impressions and what you might recommend, Trevor, to to others uh, among our listening audience if they're interested in Ukrainian nationalism. Uh, I know the work Alexander Zaitsev would would certainly be one, but Perhaps you could give us a few authors or books that you might have in mind. Um, well, certainly, if, if you can read Ukrainian, uh, Zaitsev has, has done some of the best work on Donsov and, and Ukrainian nationalism. Um, there's an excellent book that came out a few years ago now on uh, Ukrainian nationalism, uh, politics, literature uh, by Miroslav Shkandri uh, that I would recommend. Uh, and and there are some uh, up and coming scholars um, like uh, Fabian Bauman, uh, who just defended a, a really wonderful dissertation uh, on Ukrainian nationalists uh, coming out of the, the 19th century and, and how, you know, a family, the, the dissertation focuses on the, the Shulgin, uh, Shulhin family. Uh, one family can, can create uh, both Russian nationalists and Ukrainian nationalists 
uh, and and that these sort of uh, political and uh, and uh, ethnic divisions um, aren't really determined by heredity, right? That they're they're determined by a certain political commitment that that individuals make. Uh, so that those are the the books I'd recommend. Okay, okay. And so, last question. This is really it. I've been interrogating you now for almost an hour. But what are you working on now? Can you can you talk about um, your new project, which sounds really exciting to me about Ukrainian modernism and its aesthetics? Yeah. So I've really just begun working on this, um, and what I've been looking at is a, a journal that appeared in in Kiev uh, from 1909 to 1914 called uh, Ukrainska Khata. Uh, it was kind of the Ukrainian hut. Uh, and, and this was a journal that was created by uh, a new generation of uh, Ukrainian writers who were very modernist uh, in their outlook, who were I- iconoclastic uh, and also very nationalistic, uh, you know, on the, on the eve of the First World War. Uh, and so I'm interested in, in looking at their conflict with the older generation of Ukrainophiles, um, you know, people like uh, Hrushevsky and others who uh, who had a more tolerant vision of Ukrainian <laughs> you, you, or, you don't you don't say <laughs> a, l- a little more tolerant, right? Uh, right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Trevor. I, I, those are those are excellent recommendations, and I really appreciate you um, taking time out of, of your really busy schedule at the University of Pittsburgh and with with ACs. Um, we've been talking here at New Books Network with. Uh, Dr. Trevor Erlocker, who is the author of Ukrainian Nationalism in the Age of Extremes, an intellectual biography of Dmitro Donsov, published in 2021 by Harvard University Press and the Ukrainian Research Institute. Congratulations, Trevor, so much on, on the publication of, of this giant biography. Uh, it's, it's such an accomplishment. And thanks again for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen. It's been great. And I'm your host here at New Books Network and New Books in Eastern European Studies, New Books History, and New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. Uh, I'm Stephen Siegel, and thanks for joining us. Until next time.